Today, we are continuing a teaching series that we've been in for several weeks now, kind of months now, uh, that we're calling Roadblocks, Moving Forward. This is part 10 in this series. We don't often do a series this long, but, uh, so, but I'm not going to, and typically we kind of go back and review where we've been. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, just to say that as we follow Jesus, if we're moving in a direction, if we're moving forward, then we said that it stands to reason that there's a path then that we can follow, right? That there's a road that we can walk on, and perhaps while walking on that road, then at some point along the way, we are going to encounter some roadblocks. And these roadblocks have the potential to negatively affect our spiritual and emotional and relational health uh, to slow our progress and even create distance between us and God. So we've started off each week of this series with the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, verse 25, where he says, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So today's topic may surprise you, but I want to talk about a concept that depending on your church experience, uh, your, maybe your experience in the church subculture, because that's a thing, the kinds of books that you've read or studies that you've done, this very idea can stop you in your tracks and kind of paralyze you in your faith journey. I'm talking today about the idea of God's will. How many of you have ever heard that term? You're familiar with the term God's will. You know what? I'm kind of have an idea because you're a churchy insider. You know. Uh, can I just see your hands again so we can all... That's Okay, gotcha. Okay. Um, how many of you have ever had trouble determining God's will for your life in a certain situation? Ever struggle with uh, just a little... Okay, same hands. Okay. <laughs> how many of you have found discovering and following God's will to be a crystal clear step-by-step process and there isn't any mystery in it for you? Because if you put your hand up, you're teaching this message. So, uh, <laughs> How many of you have ever become so frustrated with trying to know God's will in a situation that you've given up and moved on regardless of, of what God's will might have been? Don't answer that one. But we can all probably say, yeah, we've been there too. Then I would say that for all of us, this verse is, is for you. This verse in the New Testament should clear it up for you once and for all. It could be a short sermon. Uh, a couple weeks ago, don't get excited, it's not. A couple weeks ago, in part nine of this series, we talked about forgiveness. And we were looking at a couple of verses in Ephesians chapter four, where the Apostle Paul says to get rid of all this stuff in our lives, like anger and bitterness and slander. And then he says all kinds of evil behavior. And he doesn't tell us how, he just says, get rid of it. And then he goes so far as to say, on top of that, forgive one another. And again, he doesn't really tell us how, he just says to do it. And in keeping with this writing style, if we keep reading in the next chapter, and, and did you know that like, when the Bible was originally written, uh, it didn't have chapters and verses? Those were added much later with the idea of helping us find our way around, which is great. But the downside is that it has also led to a lot of poor teaching and wrong beliefs about some ideas because we tend to take the little parts, a verse here, a verse there, we lift them out of their original context and treat them as if they stand alone, if they fit nicely on a bumper sticker on a pla- or a plaque in our, in our hallway in our, or in our bathroom. Um, but here's the thing. Sometimes they can't and they shouldn't stand alone because the context is so important. So anyway, if we were to keep reading as Paul's original readers would have done, they wouldn't have stopped at verse 32 of Ephesians 4 where it says, you know, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you, you know, 
That's it, period, end of chapter 4, come back next week and we'll read the rest of the letter to you. Now, they would have kept reading because it's just all one letter, it's one continuous line of thinking. So if we keep reading past where he left, we left off a couple of weeks ago, and we read into what we know as chapter 5 and get to verse 17, Paul writes this, understand what the Lord's will is, period. So you just write that down, because that's, that's the secret, that's the secret, understand it. That's all. That's all. And I mean, I loved teachers in school who were just like, well, just understand. There you go. Test next week. You know, um, this, is, this is not helpful to me. <laughs> this does not help me understand. It is an imperative that I understand, but it doesn't tell me how to understand. Um, so, like, you read that and you come across it, and it's like, oh, thank you, Paul. This is great. So insightful. Thank you for the step-by-step. I appreciate the formula. Like, how did I miss this before? It's so helpful. A little sarcastic here. When it comes to talking about God's will, I think it's helpful to approach it with an awareness of our starting point. And what I mean by that is that there are some guiding or foundational truths that we operate from. For instance, I've been around the church a long time because I'm older than you think I am. And... uh, (laughs) I've been, I want to, anyway, I've been around church a long time. I'm sure, I know I use some church insider language. I know that. I'm, I'm aware of that about myself. And I'm constantly like trying to make myself aware of that, of the, like when that's happening and, and kind of backing up a little bit because what that might sound like to someone who is outside the church or maybe someone who's a brand new follower of Jesus and I don't want to alienate them or push them away or make them feel less than because of my insider language. So I work on that all the time. But that's one part of it. The other more important side of some church insider language is that our insider language often informs our theology, which is, theology is basically our understanding of who God is, what He's like, and how He operates. See, and you've heard me say this before, but I believe words matter. Like the words we use can actually shape and inform our beliefs and our worldview. And when we repeat some of our church insider language, we may think we're saying what we mean, but sometimes because we've repeated it so much, we start to believe the words that we're saying when they aren't solidly rooted in biblical truth. So let me give you an example. Here's one. This, is, uh, this may come as a shock to some of you, but I have a handful of pet peeves. So this is, and I have a microphone and a podium, so it works out well for me. But this is one of, this is one of my pet peeves, this one. And just, can you hang with me through this? Because if you're like, that's offensive, well, just hang with me. Let me get all done, and then we'll decide if it's offensive. Here's one. Well, God is in control. Don't worry about it. God's in control. Aren't you glad that God's in control? My response to that is, I don't know. Because I don't know what you mean by that. Like, when it comes down to the intersection of God is in control... And the exercise of human free will, where does God in control end? Like, does that infringe on our ability to choose? Like, if so, when and how? And if so, is that really the kind of God you want to believe in? So if you lean heavily into Calvinist theology, that just, you just, I... I, sorry, I know I won't get you back this morning, sorry about that, but if you love to lean into God is in control, that's fine, I guess. I'm just concerned what happens 
to our faith. When the wheels fall off in some area of your life and all you have left is God is in control, like I'm not sure that's a very accurate view of what God is actually like. So there's that one. It's a sermon for a different day. I love this one. This, this, is, one of my, this is one of mine. Another pet peeve. You don't have to write this down. In fact, please don't because <laughs> that's twisted. Here's one. God gives us the leaders we deserve. I knew I shouldn't have brought that one up. Because I don't even know where to begin with this one. Ever heard this? Ever heard somebody say this? I've heard people say it. People say it to me while we're drinking coffee and then I spit my coffee out. Because I'm like, what are you talking about? God gives us the leaders we deserve. So my question is always then, why do we go to a voting booth? Is that a sham? If God's already determined who we get at, as leaders at whatever level, like why bother voting then? That's just a, an exercise in what? I don't know. Is, or here, is God somehow, like I went in intending to vote for this person, God somehow manipulated my hands and I voted for the other person, like a puppet master. I don't think God's a puppet master. Or do the votes magically change once they're in the ballot box? See, I just wonder, is it actually God, not political operatives on either side of the aisle? It might be God messing with voting machines. So who are you going to sue about that? So I don't know. <laughs> I'm so glad you're laughing about this. But have you ever noticed when we use language like this, that God gives us the leaders we deserve, there are always Christians from both sides of the political spectrum. Did you know that? There are Christians on both ends of the political spectrum. Who knew? There are. They're in this room. Because if you think everybody in this room thinks just like you politically, you haven't talked to any people. Or you only talk to the people that you think that you, you enjoy your life in an echo chamber. I don't know. There are always Christians from both sides of the political spectrum either lamenting or celebrating this idea at the same time. Like, it doesn't matter who's in office, whether we're talking about Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anybody who came before them. There have always been Christians on one side celebrating the idea that God gives us the leaders we deserve. We must be doing something right. Look who's in the White House. While at the same time, Christians on the other side are prophesying the end of days because God gives us the leaders we deserve. What have we done? Look who's in the White House. We are done. And they're saying this at the same time about the same elected leaders. So my point is, this kind of language, God gives us the leaders we deserve, is not helpful because it is not true. Here's another one. I'm not going to do all morning on this. I just wanted to get a couple things off my chest. How about this one? <laughs> I have a point here. Everything happens for a reason. I'm going to tell you, first of all, that is so helpful when you're trying to console someone who's just lost a loved one. Super helpful. Makes people just, you endears you to people. Nope. Okay, okay, so everything happens for a reason. That's the good news. The bad news is it's not necessarily the reason we hope for. <laughs> so here's what I believe. Sometimes a bad thing might turn into a good thing. Sometimes. Sometimes a bad thing is just a bad thing. And perhaps the best forum for fleshing out nuanced issues like this is social media. <laughs> no, not, no, no. I saw this on Facebook recently, um, and I've forgotten where I saw it, so I hope if it's one of you, I apologize, but, but that's just words too. Um, 
I saw this one on Facebook recently. Can you show this one, Ben? Everything will work out. You don't have to know how. Just trust God, have faith, and believe that it will. Amen. Which makes it true if you put amen at the end. None of that's true. Because my point is, everything will work out, unless it doesn't. You can't sit with someone, with a dying loved one, and use words like this. This stuff is, this sounds nitpicky, but this stuff, kind of stuff is important because we become embittered with God when we hold God to a promise that he never made. So we need to be careful not to put words in God's mouth. Sometimes we need to bore down a little deeper than the cliched responses and catchphrases that we like to share in memes on Facebook. All right, so I said all that to get to this. This, this church insider phrase. If the Lord wills, or the Lord willing. <laughs> I, I, I don't even, well, let me just keep going. I know where this, verse, where this comes from. This comes from a singular verse, again, one verse lifted out of a passage of a larger letter. So in James chapter 4, verse 13, uh, James writes, You who say, today or tomorrow we'll go out and do to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This verse isn't about uttering a specific phrase. This verse is about the condition of your heart. He's addressing proud, boastful spirit in some of his readers. In the paragraphs before this, he says, submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Do not slander one another. You, who are you to judge one another? And then he says, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So there's a lot going on here that he's addressing. Because here's the thing. Beliefs inform our words and our words have the power to inform our beliefs. So if we lean into the Lord willing before every possible decision, I fear that in waiting on the Lord to show us what to do, we're abdicating our responsibility to exercise wisdom, to take initiative, and to do something. Because here's the thing, and this is what I really want to get to. God's will is not always crystal clear. Have you noticed that when it comes time to make a major decision, most of us have a heightened interest in discovering God's will. Because when we're making a choice about a job opportunity or selecting a college or determining the future of a romantic relationship or deciding where to live or where to go to church, or we, we just don't want to blow that. Those are the big ones. And so we seek God's will with extra fervor. We pray for it. We ask about it. We search for it. We talk about it. All in hopes that God will just make it clear to us what we are to do. Some of us look for signs and divine coincidences. Those mystical open doors that supposedly indicate God's leading. Other people look deep within themselves, looking for some kind of supernatural insight or a sense of inner peace to show the way. Others play Bible roulette where they just flip through pages of their Bible until they find a passage that seems to speak into their situation. Some of us major on fact-finding and wise counsel or at least the advice of a few friends and almost all of us pray a little bit more like, Lord, show me your will, please. 
as I've watched the way that we as church people and followers of Jesus, the way that we go about trying to determine God's will, it's, I'm convinced that the majority of us assume that God's will is both important and elusive. It's important for obvious reasons, right? Anytime God has a specific plan or a preference in mind, only a, few, a fool ignores that and a bigger fool defies it. Like, read the Old Testament story of the prophet Jonah, for instance, Okay. So as for God's will being elusive, it's elusive because, this will be super helpful, it just is. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why, but it just is. Which raises a troubling question. If God's will is so important, why is it so hard to find? Well, the surprising answer is it's not as hard to find as we often make it to be. Like, it's not hidden. There's no cosmic Easter egg hunt required to see like who can find it and who gets left with the empty basket with no direction. But unfortunately, that's how many of us feel. But the truth is, a lot of the time, here's the thing, we're looking for the wrong thing. The problem stems from a concept that many of us have been taught uh, from childhood, and, and uh, we've talked about this in this setting before. It's been a little while. But we've been led to believe that God has a highly detailed blueprint for our lives, that includes a specific preordained job, career, house, spouse, car, everything in between, like a giant cosmic game of MASH, if you remember playing that as a kid. As a result, we spend a lot of time looking for that special person, that special place, that per- special thing that we think God has like just for us. It's the egg we hunt for, but that egg doesn't exist. Like the idea of a detailed blueprint for our life is a myth. It confuses God's omniscience with his divine will. Like, there's no question that God knows everything. Like, here's an example. Down, this is, this is what the Bible says, down to the number of hairs on our head. But that doesn't mean he knows that. But it doesn't mean he has a plan for those hairs. Or that he has a plan for how many hairs we have. Or that we're in rebellion if we color some of them or try to replace some of the ones we've lost. Okay, God doesn't have a blueprint for our lives. Never has, never will. Like, so consider how a blueprint works. A blueprint contains a specific set of instructions that spell out like everything in detail. It's so specific that any skilled craftsman with the ability to read and follow a set of plans can build exactly what the architect had in mind. That's the idea. But imagine a builder who doesn't agree with the architect's design, ignores parts of the blueprint that he doesn't like or understand. He will soon have a major problem on his hands. Along with suffering the wrath of the architect and the owner, he'll also have to face the ire of like, the building inspector. Even worse, he'll have to pay the cost of restoring everything back to the way the plans originally, what they called for. Like You don't mess with blueprints. You follow them. And for many of us, this is our metaphor for God's will. It's why I think God's will is less like a blueprint and more like a game plan. A game plan is very different. Rather than spelling out everything in detail, it sets forth general guidelines and principles with lots of freedom and flexibility. You probably, maybe you've never associated the words freedom and flexibility with the idea of God's will. But a game plan provides lots of freedom and flexibility for adjustments 
as the game unfolds. So let's take a football game, for example. Um, most NFL quarterbacks today wear a wristband that has plays from that day's specific game plan written on a card. So like here's Tom Brady back in the good old days, and the offense is, is in the huddle, and the play clock is running down, and he's looking at his play card. He's got his hand right on the play card. At least two plays, here's what's happening. At least two, at least two plays have already been called, and he's going to give the offense the options. And when he gets to the line of scrimmage, he can change the play because of on-the-fly adjustments. That they're built into every play. What starts out as a post pattern turns into something else altogether. If the linebackers are showing blitz or the defensive backfield shows a different scheme than the offensive coordinator was anticipating, and all of this happens like so quickly, as soon as one play ends, the offensive coordinator who's either upstairs or down on the sidelines, there's a picture of Sean McVay with his extensive play card, and he calls the next play into the, to the quarterback through the radio in his helmet, and a few seconds later, when the quarterback leads the team to the line of scrimmage and he looks over the defensive package, he can either go with the play that was called, or he can choose another play from the game plan that he can find right there on his wristband. And the day's game plan is based on the personnel available on that day in light of what team they're playing. Like, no quarterback throws a ball to a well-covered receiver just because that's the way the play was designed, and it's the way they did it in practice, and that's the way they have to do it, unless he wants to sit on the bench, or his name is Tony Romo. So instead, I can say that I'm a Cowboys fan, so I just, I, I get it, I own it. Instead, he's got, a, he's got a couple options. He can throw the ball away, or he can change the play at the line of scrimmage, and he can do this and still be working within the pre-established game plan. Now, doesn't mean, hey, go out there and do as you please. That's not how it works. The quarterback can't decide to run out of bounds and then sneak back on the field when no one's looking. Like, he can't do that. He can't throw a pass to an ineligible receiver. Those things aren't allowed. But within the rules of the game, within the guidelines of the game plan that's presented by the coaches that they've developed, he has a lot of options. So, like, if plan A breaks down, he's expected to try something else to try to win the game, but not, you, can't, like, you don't get to do that with a blueprint, it has no plan B. If plan A gets messed up, everything is messed up. It's the domino effect, and it's back to the drawing board. And in fact, most cases, changes to the blueprint cost you big time. So, are you sure you want a blueprint? I find that a lot of people are actually discomforted at the thought that God might not have a detailed blueprint for every aspect of their life. Because that idea has been so ingrained in them somewhere along the way that it's become this source of comfort and assurance. But let's think about it for a minute. Do you really want a detailed blueprint for your life? Because like, imagine what would happen if God's will for us was actually like a blueprint. Like detailed down to the parking space that you're meant to have on Saturday morning at Walmart. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's never God's will for you to go to Walmart on a Saturday morning. So <laughs> what we, <laughs> right? A lot of people in rebellion there. Um, when we lean into the idea of God's will as a specific blueprint, like what happens in a fallen world when others decide to ignore God's blueprint for their lives? Like, it's not so bad if they take our parking space. That's not a big deal. But what if they buy the house that God had picked out for us? Or what if they cheat on an, extra, on an entrance exam and they take the last open spot in the college that we are supposed to go to? And you're like, oh, that can't happen because God knows everything. He would step in and stop it. Really? 
Because if God would step in and stop that, just to preserve his somehow his detailed blueprint, then isn't humankind's free will just a sham then? Or what happens if in a moment of spiritual rebellion, Joe Christian dates and marries the wrong woman? Like, if God wouldn't allow that to happen, then we're not much more than puppets on a string. Like, and if he does allow it, Joe might have just put the whole world in a jam. Like, here's what I mean, because like the poor girl he was supposed to marry stuck, her blueprint ruined forever. Same guy, same for the guy who was supposed to marry, marry Joe's new wife. Like, Joe may well have started a chain reaction that will eventually mess up marriages worldwide. It's a bit facetious, but you kind of see what I'm talking about. Now, this isn't to say that God never has a specific and highly detailed plan in mind. Sometimes he does. Like he told Moses and the children of Israel exactly where to camp and when to move during their wandering in the wilderness. He sent Jeremiah to a potter's house and told him to watch for an object lesson. If you know the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, he told him to marry Gomer. And I'm like, that one like, had to be God because that was a weird one. He changed, I mean, her name was Gomer. He changed... <laughs> He changed the Apostle Paul's itinerary for one of his planned mission trips. But these kinds of explicit instructions are exceptions. There's a reason we know those stories because they're exceptions, not the norm, even in the lives of our biblical heroes. So the fact is, we have a lot more freedom than any blueprint would allow. And the main reason the details of God's will sometimes seem hard to find is because they often aren't there. We're asking God, which one? Like, which one, God? Which one? And he's like, I don't care. It's up to you. Make a decision. And you're like, I don't, I don't think that's how it works. Okay. In the vast majority of situations and decisions, we have a lot of latitude. I don't think God cares where we work so much as how we work. I don't think God cares where we live so much as how we live. Here's one. I don't think God cares so much who we marry so much as how we do marriage. Yeah, less or less, I thought. Um, so, and good, good concept up to a certain point. I get it. You look at the actual words of the New Testament, you'll notice there's very little emphasis on the kinds of decisions that we commonly stress over. Instead, the primary emphasis is on godly character. It's on daily obedience as our pattern for life. God doesn't care so much where we work as how we work or where we live so much as how we live or whom we marry so much as how we do marriage. And, and you may be, you, I can tell you bristle at that one. But my point is, if you find yourself struggling in your marriage and you wonder if marry, maybe you married the wrong person, like at that point, that's not the issue so much as how are you going to do marriage? What kind of person are you going to be in the context of your marriage? Now, like certainly when we're faced with big decisions, right, we should pause to check the scriptures and ask God if he has any specific input. And if he does, either through the scriptures or through the inner leading of the Holy Spirit or through the advice of godly counsel, we must do as he says and as he leads. That's the way it works. But we shouldn't be surprised when most of the time his silence says, you're focusing on the wrong thing. This one is your call. That's not all. A blueprint mentality has other significant spiritual downsides. Like besides being an inaccurate and faulty metaphor for how God's will actually works, it also tends to produce a couple of dangerous spiritual side effects that become significant roadblocks in our spiritual development. 
in the early 2000s um, until about 2006, 2007 or so, I worked for the city of Ellsworth part-time as their communication liaison on a couple of road construction projects. The, how many of you remember the high street widening if you've been around for a while? And uh, you're like, that's the wide version? Uh-huh. And, uh, and Myrick Street and Beckwith Hill Triangle Project. And I'm not here to take your comments or suggestions or complaints or your napkin sketches of a better approach to whatever intersection. That's not my job anymore. I'm not paid to listen to that. So if you fancy yourself a traffic engineer, talk to someone who will listen. I won't mention any names in the room. But I coordinated a lot of the communication between the city and the state DOT and contractors and business owners and landowners and developers. In this role, I got to work with a bunch of people I'd never worked with before, engineers and contractors and uh, job foremen and safety coordinators and public relations directors from different companies and city department heads. And on each of these projects, I talked with estimators, and I learned what estimators do. An estimator's job is to take a set of plans. Like I think, honestly, I feel like the, it, it's, it's a role that's misnamed. Because <laughs> if all they're doing is estimating, uh, they don't have a job next week. An estimator's job is to take a set of plans or blueprints. These, these plans were a couple inches thick, several hundred pages. And pull out everything that has to do with completing the project. So he would note all of the, he or she would note all of the infrastructure elements like water and sewer and storm and drains and stuff like that. And then, and then this one is one that got me the quantities of this material and the quantities of that material and the quantities of that material. And I had no idea there were that many different kinds of dirt. Like I had no idea. And uh, he noted all the requirements for utility companies and what exactly needed to be done with power and phone and cable and traffic signals to accommodate this whole project. And he would project how many man hours were required to carry out each step of the job and whether, what kinds of equipment they would need. And, and he scheduled all these timelines. And he also had to allow for inevitable change orders. So there had to be some margin in there. And based on what his team would come up with, he would submit a price to either the state or the city or the developer, depending on who was responsible for the job. And then, then another set of estimators representing various companies would repeat the entire process, decided whether they were even interested in the job, and then the company, or then the, you know, whoever paying for it would bid on the job. We choose a, well, she said, we'd choose a contractor. So a contractor's worst uh, nightmare is to miss something um, significant on the plans. Like to submit a bid low enough to get the job but too low to finish the job and too low to make a profit once all these overlooked specs are added back in. It's what keeps a novice lying awake at night. Here's the thing. I noticed a correlation. I've noticed that lots of Christians with a blueprint mentality towards God's will approach every major decision like a rookie estimator approaches a set of plans. They're petrified of making a mistake. But that's what a blueprint mentality does. In the mistaken belief that there's only one right choice for every area of life, it paralyzes decision-making. And as a result, we end up hesitating and overthinking and rejecting lots of good and acceptable options. Like if the scriptures tell us what to do, then by all means, do it. Like don't wait on it, do it. Like do it now. But if not, then make the best, wisest choice we can and move on. Another problem with a blueprint mentality is it skews our focus. Like it turns our focus towards the wrong things. Instead of being concerned about the weightier matters of godliness, you know, justice and mercy and grace and obedience, we fixate on finding the right person to date, choosing the right career, renting the right apartment, buying the right house or the right car or whatever. And, and I'm not saying those decisions are unimportant. They're important. Like decisions ultimately create destiny, but they aren't nearly as important as a life of daily obedience. 
Like when God has clearly spoken in his word and when he speaks over and over into your life through godly counsel of a trusted friend or friends and when he's spoken into our spirits through the work of his Holy Spirit and we choose to ignore that voice, we choose to ignore that crystal clear will of God and choose to live in disobedience to, to what we know to be God's will, then when we come to him about a decision to be made in some other area of our lives, it's like we're treating God like a part-time blueprint consultant. Like someone to turn to for the really big decisions. But someone who's not particularly relevant in the day-to-day stuff. But that's a problem because God doesn't do consulting. He does God. It's obviously unfair to paint with a broad brush as to imply that everyone who sees God's will as a detailed blueprint, if that's been like your, your view of this, that somehow you're ignoring God's day-to-day commands. That's not what I'm saying. It's clearly not the case. But a blueprint mindset does tend to turn our focus more towards finding rather than becoming. Larry Osborne, who's a pastor and an author that I like to listen to and read, Said, he says this, he tells this story. He says, I remember asking a college group I was leading to list all the traits they were looking for in an ideal mate. And the lists were impressive. They revealed what most of the students were looking for, mates perfectly suited just for them. Then I asked everyone to look at their list again, this time instead focusing on what they were, instead of focusing on what they were looking for and where they might find such a person, I suggested they ask another question while looking at this list. I asked them this question, why would... A person like this want to marry you. Yeah, and the room became strangely quiet. Because their blueprint mentality put them in search mode. Like most of them hadn't even considered that God's will for their future marriage, if that was where they went, might involve more than finding the right mate. Or that the most important key to a great marriage might actually become who you would become not who you would find. Romans 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's talk about understanding God's game plan. Besides being a far more accurate metaphor for how God's will works, I think seeing God's will as a game plan emphasizes that the knowledge of his will is actually within reach. Like all the basic guidelines and principles are found in Scripture. And when we have the basics in hand, we can know what to do, what not to do, how to think, how to live, no matter how unusual the situation or how complex a decision might be. And while mastering God's plan is pretty simple on one hand, it's also highly nuanced on the other. And you're like, yeah, nice, convenient. You have it both ways. You're not really being very clear. But here's the thing. The longer we're at it, the deeper and better our understanding becomes. And not just the longer, but the more intentional we are about it. Jesus, because it's not out of reach for the newest of Jesus followers either. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Sometimes in the pursuit of a highly detailed blueprint version of God's will, we're exhausted. It feels like a burden. Jesus says, bring that and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. You know a yoke is, a, is a, an implement for steering the animals. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So with that in mind, it's like a real quick flyby of the basics of God's will, the things that once we master them, will turn the process of being in God's will into a, like, into a journey to become someone rather than a search to find something elusive. Number one, obey what we know. Like the starting place for knowing God's will is obeying the commands and instructions of Scripture that we already know. The, the pathway of obedience always leads to further light. Like if we obey the light we have, we get more. If we disobey the light we have, we tend to get less. And it helps to explain why it's kind of a waste of time and energy to seek God's leading for a major crossroads decision if we are currently disobeying Him in the things that we already know. So if we can simply start with what we already know and then do it, then we're ready to tackle the rest in time. Number two, I would say get the facts, as many as possible. To follow any game plan, especially God's game plan, we have to use our brain. The facts always matter, even in the spiritual realm. Don't check your brain at the door. King Solomon noted that the wise and righteous check the facts before choosing a course of action, whereas fools don't bother. They jump to conclusions or they ignore the facts altogether. Unfortunately, in some circles and in some church circles, questioning a spiritual leader or even engaging your brain and rigorously checking the facts or hesitating before we jump is labeled as unspiritual, as if like faith and facts are not somehow, are somehow like incompatible. But nothing could be further from the truth. We may, we may take some time to dig into that, uh, maybe even next week. Biblical faith is not illogical. It doesn't deny or ignore facts. It fits the facts. We may not always understand what God is up to or how doing things His way can possibly like, work out in a particular situation, but I believe that it's never illogical to do what God clearly tells us to do. It's the most logical thing in the world. The real issue we all face is determining if our latest crazy idea is really from God or not. In other words, like, was that idea I had from the Lord or was uh, last night's pizza talking, right? Like, the only way to know is to put it to the test. It demands a hard look at facts. It's the only way to know with certainty the difference between a harebrained idea and a legitimate leading of the Lord. Um, I think of one of the most extreme faith stories in the Bible, and we present it to kids as, uh, as, as, a, as a, like a hero of the, of the Old Testament. Uh, but, man, it is a weird one. The story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. Have you ever thought about what that must sound like to a five-year-old who's hearing that in children's church or whatever, right? If you know the story, you know that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. They both immediately like, headed to the mountain to do so, seemingly no questions asked. And we know, we know, because we know the story, that at the last minute, God stepped in and said, hey, Abraham, hold on, this is just a test, ha-ha. And God provided a ram caught in a bush as a substitute for Isaac and affirmed Abraham's faith. That was the point. But at first glance, Abraham's actions defy logic. Most of us are like, I would hope all of us would like, I would never do that. But a careful look at the backstory puts things in a different light. What we don't talk about is the fact that pagan, the pagan practice of human sacrifice was widespread in Abraham's day. And granted, like that, and that ended with Judaism, by the way. Granted, most people 
who practiced uh, human sacrifice used humans that they saw as having little or no worth. Like only the most devout would ever consider sacrificing one of their own children, um, especially a firstborn. It was an incomprehensible practice, but it was common. This is one of those cases where the scripture is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? So it's not saying if you hear a voice out of the sky that says sacrifice your child on a you know, fiery altar, I'm not, it, you shouldn't do that. So <laughs> did I make that clear? Okay. So don't forget also that for decades, because Abraham's an old man at this point, God had spoken to Abraham face to face all through his life. And during that time, he made a series of increasingly difficult to fulfill promises. And each time they came true, like God came through for him culminating with the birth of Isaac, long after Abraham and his wife were physically able to pull that off. Like outside of Jesus, Isaac was the ultimate miracle baby. So based on all these past experiences and the hard facts of the situation, Abraham would have been a fool to disobey. Like there was no doubt it was God himself delivering the command. The instructions weren't cryptic and God had already shown himself to be completely faithful to his promises. And here's the thing, like we aren't all that different. If God has a huge step of faith that he wants us to take, there will be no doubt about what he wants us to do, and the facts will bear it out. But like Abraham, before doing something rash, we need to be sure we have the facts straight. We need to use our brain to confirm that this is really what God wants me to do. Like, is this consistent with who God is and the way God operates? Like, using your brain is a big part of following any game plan, especially God's game plan. Like, he gave you your mind for a reason. It's a good idea to use it. Like, it's hard for an athlete to follow a game plan efficiently and consistently if he misses all the team meetings. It's just as hard to follow God's game plan if we don't know the scriptures. Like, what they actually say as opposed to what we might think they say. And yet, the, I would say the current state of biblical illiteracy among self-described Christians is kind of scary and depressing. Um, present company excluded, of course. I remember when uh, WWJD, remember those, uh, remember, well, they start off as bracelets. Remember those bracelets back in the 90s? What would Jesus do? Do you remember those? How many of you remember the WWJD bracelet? Um, I was in youth ministry when that was all the rage and we had it plastered all over the place. But I found that a lot of people who wore them, because the whole premise is what would Jesus do? But a lot of people who wore them had no idea what Jesus actually said or did, or even how to find out, how to look it up. Occasionally, and in, in these cases the devil made me do it, but I'd ask someone, someone I knew, not someone like who I met at the coffee shop or whatever, wearing one of the bracelets, I would ask if they could help me um, like find the Sermon on the Mount or locate the passage where Jesus said, you know, uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And most couldn't. Though uh, some were pretty sure they could find the verse about early to bed, early to rise makes one healthy, wealthy, wise. Yeah. Um, my point is, it, it does us no good to try and do what Jesus would do if we have no idea what Jesus actually did. So it's not enough that to like make our best guess and be well-intended. God's, way, God's game plan is way too like, counterintuitive for that. Like, none of us is likely to come up with loving our enemies and praying for and praying a blessing over our enemies. We aren't going to come up with that idea. And we aren't like serving like those who lead operating from a place of servanthood, or keeping our word at all costs. Like those kinds of responses only come from spending time with the playbook. So in order to think biblically, we have to master the basics. In sports, they're called the fundamentals. Uh, And we don't use that word around church much because it's gotten such a 
bad reputation, but the basic skills that are needed to play the game, whether it's basketball or golf or football, whatever, there are some skills every player has to master in order to have a chance to succeed and, and win. The same holds true for God's will. Like there are some basic parts of his game plan that we have to master in order to experience it. And the basics are made up of the clear black and white commands of Scripture. They tell us explicitly what God would want us to do or not to do in any situation. Those are the basics. Things like tell the truth, be kind, forgive one another, don't repay uh, evil for evil, but repay evil with good, right? Like no matter how difficult a decision or a dilemma may be, the basics can always be counted on to steer us in the right direction. The most basic of all the passages that go so far as to state like this is what God wants, like this is God's will for you, those are a great place to start. Like things like God's told us he wants everyone to come to a place of repentance or spiritual turnaround that results in following Jesus. So it's probably not worth asking him to show us his will for a major decision if we're not going to follow his son on a daily basis. Our job is not so much to find something as to become someone, a reflection of his image. And once again, I just think it makes no sense to seek his direction and his help when I resist the words of the Spirit in Scripture or the whisper of the Spirit in my own heart. So like, God does indeed have a plan for us, but it's, I believe it's a game plan with lots of freedom and lots of flexibility, not a blueprint where every detail is spelled out. Our responsibility is not so much to find something, it's to become someone is to become a reflection of his image and his character no matter where we find ourselves. Once more, the words of the apostle. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for its practical guidance. Thank you for those places where it's black and white, crystal clear. This is how you are to act. Here's is how you are to think. This is how you, here's how you are to love and to serve. Here's some ways to avoid negative you know, consequences. Thank you for the crystal clear direction. This morning we acknowledge that a lot of life comes to us with nuance and we seem to live a lot of life in the tension of that gray. And so God, I pray that you would uh, show yourself to us um, in the face of certain kinds of decisions. I pray that you would just grant peace and, and in some cases courage to actually just act knowing that you've given us freedom to make a decision, to make a wise best choice that we'll find freedom in that and leaning into your will in that way from that perspective. So I thank you for that. Pray you bless us now as we worship together in music and uh, may you be pleased with this offering in Jesus' name. Amen.